For example, the Met Opera, which has been one of the cornerstones of, of event cinema, has recently said that they're just not filming their fall season. Live concerts aren't happening. Ballet, live theater events aren't happening. And while a lot of these distributors, you know, they do have older titles kind of, you know, in the bank, those are going to run out eventually. So what do you do? This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Russ Fisher, the editorial director of Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters. And I'm joined, as always, by... Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro magazine, and Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro. Uh, good to have you back, both of you, again. Thank you so much. And how are you doing today, Russ? We haven't we haven't asked our our, our usual how are we uh, coping with things because there's been a lot of things. I think it's fair to say uh, every day has been, uh, in its own sense, a bit overwhelming. I think. Yeah, it's a lot right now. There's a lot going on. Um, I'm blissfully insulated from a lot of things with my wife and my child in our house, and we're all just trying to keep going one day at a time. And, uh, you know, that's where we are, really. And Rebecca, over in Brooklyn, uh, what have you been up to, at least on your viewing practices? I know you've been watching less movies lately. Should I put you on the spot? What have you been uh, passing your time with? No, I've geared back up to um, watching more or less exclusively bad 80s musicals. Oh, I love it. Last night was Grease 2. Before that was the uh, the Village People musical, Can't Stop the Music, which I have to say, I know Grease 2 has its has its well-deserved cult following, but uh, Can't Stop the Music is, is better, I think. Oh, okay. So that, that's my hot take of, of the podcast session. You guys, watch the Village People musical. Okay. If we have any art house exhibitors out there that want to do us the favor to do a virtual theatrical of that Village People musical, I think Russ and I would be happy to buy tickets. Not to put you on the spot, Russ, but uh, I would do that, that looks like a fun, fun activity. We're going to start with a little news recap because we have a couple of things that are big this week that pertain to the subjects we've been discussing from the very first episode of the podcast, which is that movie theaters are starting to reopen. I live in Los Angeles. As of this week, California is officially allowed to reopen and uh, some businesses are encouraged to reopen. Movie theaters are among them, although we may not see those doors open just yet. And Rebecca, where do things stand as far as the reopening? About what you said, that movie theaters in California may uh, technically be allowed to reopen. But, I mean, there are other states now, too, um, you know, like Iowa, for example, like Georgia, where movie theaters are technically allowed to be open. But you're not really seeing a, a widespread opening of theaters. The exception to that is, is of course, Texas. Um, and, and, you know, and the reason for it is you know, we're waiting on, on the chains and just, uh, yesterday or, or Tuesday, um, the day before we recorded this podcast, AMC came out on, on a quarterly earnings call and said, basically, look, we're not opening like the vast majority of our theaters. We're aiming for July. We're aiming for right before tenant. It's a similar situation, uh, with Cinemark where they're, you know, they're starting to open a few in, in, in late June, but really the majority are going to be in July. Regal hasn't said anything yet, but it's looking it's looking how that's going to go, that all, all the all the dominoes are kind of aligning to shortly before Tenet. Now, if Tenet keeps its release date as, as the 17th, that's a 
that's a separate question. <laughs> um, no, but it's important to bring up, I think, also that by next week, I'm fairly confident we'll have an idea of when Cineworld, the parent company behind uh, Regal and uh, UK exhibitor Cineworld, what they'll be tackling, what their time frame is. We have, uh, obviously, Cine Europe Online, the, the large convention for European circuits. That's going to be happening digitally next week. And uh, their CEO, Muki Greidinger, is set to speak in a, in a panel discussion. I'm sure we'll be able to find out really what their plans are. So really, as Rebecca's saying, we're, we're getting to that point of figuring out when we'll be able to see cinemas open up worldwide. And it's just, uh, you know, what content there will be for them to show is, is, is a separate issue. Uh, you know, we have Tenet July 17th. We have um, Mulan the week after, if the dates hold. But actually, I mean, that, that brings us to the subject of, of, of this week's podcast, uh, which is event cinema. Now, now, just to kind of briefly go into what event cinema is, really, really the best way to do it is by using examples. As a fan of classic cinema, the uh, aspect, the element of event cinema that I'm most familiar with is the TCM big screen series, which Fathom puts on. They bring older movies back to the big screen. A huge component of event cinema is stuff like Metropolitan Opera, theater, Broadway, ballet, classical stuff, you know, stuff that I'm not cultured enough for, but a lot of people are. But really, it's a lot more than that. At its core, what event cinema is, is it takes these more niche titles, things that really don't have the reach or don't have the really wide appeal that is needed for a major studio release. We're talking hundreds, if not thousands of theaters, multiple showtimes a day. These are things that will be released maybe one night, maybe you know an encore presentation of two or three more nights, but they're geared to fans of specific properties and they're not trying to reach everybody else. Uh, and what that does in a really interesting way, I think, is, is it adds diversity of programming to the cinema landscape beyond just films the studios put out. It's not as expensive to put these films out. It's not as expensive to market them. Uh, and, and what you get then is you get some really successful titles. For example, last year, there were two uh, BTS concert docs. It's BTS, the gigantically, enormously, apocalyptically popular Korean boy band. Two concert films from them made a ton of money. Uh, the National Theatre Live's production of Fleabag uh, was the biggest event cinema title of all time in the UK and, and Ireland last year. And you got you got anime, you got faith-based content, you got special interest documentaries. It's just a really wide variety of stuff across across the entire event cinema landscape. So you might be saying, okay, this is the same as if, you know, a repertory theater releases, uh, you know, an older title. And there's really a distinction to that, which is that event cinema is really appointment viewing. It, it is a model that is built on scarcity. You know, you have, you have a concert film that comes out and it comes out one night in multiple countries and you have to buy your ticket for it then or it's gone. It really is, is not intended to be this sort of wide model that is adopted by the rest of the distribution world. Uh, you know, and, and it's been quite successful. Fathom Events, which is one of the, uh, the, the leading event cinema distributors in North America, is actually, as of last year, the 11th biggest distributor of content, just like among everybody, oh, wow. <laughs> to theaters in North America. 
So it's kind of, you know, it's not something that you necessarily see a lot of commercials for, see a lot of trailers for, because again, the marketing budgets aren't there. But if a band you like or a stand-up comedian you like uh, is, is doing an event cinema event, you're going to hear about it on, on its, their social media. It's very appointment viewing. It's very fan driven. And as such, event cinema is really uh, based around enthusiasm. And enthusiasm for movie theaters is definitely what we need right now as, uh, as movie theaters reopen around the world. So we felt like this would be a good topic to dive into uh, what event cinema is and what its role could play in the coming months. You know, I come to event cinema from the perspective of a, of a moviegoer, really. I've been to a couple of events. I have been aware of the programming by virtue of the work that I do. Uh, and then, you know, in Los Angeles, um, my wife and I do a newsletter called Marquee LA, which is uh, oriented towards classic film and repertory cinema and independent cinema on the big screen. And so, you know, when some of these movies that Fathom and, you know, occasionally someone like Trafalgar puts together, you know, that stuff crosses our radar and we let people know that it's happening. But I don't really know that much about kind of the economics of it and the background, for example, even the fact that Fathom is the 11th largest distributor is comes as kind of a surprise to me. I mean, really, the business model of event cinema, these event cinema distributors like Fathom, like Trafalgar, uh, like Cinelife, coincidentally, those are the three event cinema distributors who we spoke to for this podcast, they really kind of act as a middleman almost. For example, a company like Cinelife, they have a partnership with Comédie Française, which is uh, the national theater in France. They have those partnerships and they can bring those titles over to show in theaters in the United States. They have a relationship with Sony Pictures Classics. They have a relationship with Sony Pictures Classics. So uh, they were planning this kind of LGBT miniature series uh, for the month of June. All these, you know, event cinema distributors had stuff planned and, and ready to go. And then coronavirus happened. So right now, for example, that Pride Month series that Cinelife has put on is, is being pushed back to July and August. So uh, we're going to introduce a quote here from uh, Bernadette McCabe, who is uh, the executive vice president at Cinelife, uh, just talking about the fact that they already have stuff ready to go. And it's and in particular, it's content that people really want to see right now because they cannot see it in its normal setting. But something like a concert, there won't be bands touring this summer. So that will be an interesting opportunity for a consumer to see that in a movie theater versus in an arena or something like Comédie Francaise for us, where live theater isn't really available right now. So if somebody would like to see beautiful, high quality productions from the French stage, they could go to a local movie theater and see something. So most of these event cinema distributors like any other distributor really is expecting to roar back into business with their big major, in some cases, global releases in July and August, same as all the major studios. Uh, however, a lot of these companies are releasing some of the stuff that they have in their, in their back catalogs to provide programming for theaters that are open in that transition period before, before new stuff starts coming in. Here to speak on that, we have Letha Steffi, who is the new head of marketing at Fathom, which, as I mentioned before, uh, is, is the largest event cinema distributor in North America. We built this based upon a plan to fill a 30-day window. And think of it as 
you know, we, we built some themes around it. Monday, faith-based night. So we have some faith-based type films um, for Mondays, Tuesday, anime, Wednesday, classic films, Thursday, girls' night out. We actually have an array of titles, Broadway films, documentaries, family fair for the weekends. So we've built this welcome back program to support the exhibitors when they do open up. But event cinema is very, very, very much not just a North American thing. It actually isn't from North America. It, it, it was originally came into being in England where it, it's proven pretty popular. As of last year, according uh, to statistics from Comscore, it made up almost 4% of their total box office. We saw something uh, pretty interesting, I think, from uh, the company Trafalgar releasing, uh, which is releases to, you know, dozens of different companies. And, you know, they saw what was going on in Korea, where theaters never had the, you know, countrywide sustained closure that the rest of the world did, you know, theaters would close down here and there, but all of them weren't closed for a long time. Box office still wasn't good, um, you know, in part because there is still a pandemic and in part uh, because there's no content. So Trafalgar kind of shuffled their schedule around, uh, released three of their titles in Korea in April and May, King and the King and I, a, a theater production and a concert doc for uh, Metallica and for Josh Groban, which would be an excellent double bill, I think. And according to their CEO, CEO Mark Allenby, they actually did pretty well, not as well as, as they would have under normal circumstances, uh, he predicts, but it, they still did pretty well, uh, you know, which, which I think is, is definitely worth noting that a lot of these providers, you know, they have stuff in their back catalog that has, you know, been released in one country or not another, or just didn't get released at all for whatever reason that could potentially go out to different markets as they open up when the rest of the, you know, studio world hasn't really caught up yet. With a company like Trafalgar, which, and so I associate them, as you suggest, with like musical performances. I knew they had the Metallica S&M 2. I think they just had the uh, the John Waters, uh, the Wall events, some other stuff like that. Do they own the theatrical distribution rights to those projects kind of into perpetuity or are they effectively kind of licensing them for a window of time? It depends. The King and I, that's theirs. They went and, and and they did that. You know, others, it depends. And that's really the challenge for a lot of event cinema content is that you're working with, you're not just working with exhibitors, you're working with third-party content creators. And uh, the rights issues there can be kind of hairy from time to time. Right. And uh, yeah, that's never been, that, that's particularly true uh, on the subject of sports. Yeah, that's right, Rebecca. The sports question is one of the biggest ones that we often hear from both exhibitors and moviegoers when talking about event cinema. There are a lot of audiences that are looking forward to going to the movie theaters to see a big sports game, uh, one of these big events, right? What else is more indicative of a big sort of cultural social event than a, than a big game, right? And you have so many examples in different countries of how this is being handled. In the United States, the sports rights conversation is a little bit muddled. Uh, and Rebecca, I know in your interview with Mark Allenby from Trafalgar, he was able to go into a little bit of detail around what the situation there is. Of course, 
we're always like exploring ideas and looking at, at, at different things as well. But I think I think it's probably too early to, to draw too many conclusions on what that might be. And specifically around, say, sports, the rights tie up with TV broadcasting in particular is very complex. That's why it, it by and large, hasn't been part of the event cinema um, sort of uh, a content stable previously. And that was Mark Allenby of Trafalgar talking a little bit about the rights situation, how muddled it is when it comes to having access to big sports leagues, having access to big sporting events uh, for cinemas. Now, sports rights are a fairly complicated rights issue because it's something that is sold by territory, meaning that while some cinemas may be able to put on a World Cup game every four years when the event is happening, other countries might not have those rights available. In the same way that exhibitors are very tied to exclusivity around their first-run content, broadcasters that pay large amounts of money to have these live sporting events are similarly possessive as to that exclusivity window for their own platform, which is one of the reasons why I think it'll take some time to see something like NFL games or uh, let's say the NBA finals or NBA playoffs here in the United States. The financial equation is so large when it comes to these big cable networks paying for this content that I think it'll take some time to see that being shared with other platforms for live broadcasts. The technology is there, the rights issues haven't been figured out. But it's interesting that other sports that maybe aren't as generally followed here in the United States, but have large niche followings, like you were saying, Rebecca, sort of uh, corners that have very active fan communities, they do have live sports. Boxing is one of those sports that has always had an intrinsic connection with cinema exhibition. If you go back to the beginnings of commercial exhibition here in the United States, you could go into one of these Nickelodeons up and down 14th Street here in New York and pay to see a recreation of an entire boxing fight round by round, paying a different sort of uh, nickel every time you wanted to see a different round on a different machine. And it's one of those early drivers for commercial exhibition was uh, was the role that boxing played. Even though it wasn't an actual recording of the fight, many fights would be recreated in studios. And sports fans would just go down to 14th Street and watch parts of these fights bit by bit. That evolved with closed circuit technology, I think around the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and even 1970s, specifically in boxing, where you had movie theaters be a large distribution network for people that wanted to see these boxing matches and wouldn't be able to see them through open-air television. That's actually one of the reasons why uh, boxing to this day, the big fights are held on Saturdays. Cinema owners uh, throughout the those earlier decades were very weary of putting up a big fight on a Tuesday night when they thought audiences wouldn't go in and watching it. So that's why they wanted to put the biggest fights uh, in the sport on Saturday nights when they knew they could bring in a lot of these audiences. This is the sort of uh, historical connection that event cinema has always had with a commercial exhibition. Obviously, that's changed in recent years, and whereas we don't have these NBA, NFL leagues happening in cinemas, boxing is still a huge driver 
uh, for exhibition in the United States. Uh, one of my own personal memories is, is we think about what our life used to be before the coronavirus here in New York was buying a ticket through Fathom Events to see a, a live boxing match on a Saturday night at the AMC Empire 25 in Times Square here in New York. And uh, over on 44th Street, you have uh, Jimmy's Corner, which is this iconic bar. It's been here since the 1970s in the city, uh, operated by uh, Jimmy Glenn, a former cut man and former boxing trainer. And you would have this great community of, of folks, a very diverse community. You'd had Mexicans, African-Americans, people from Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, go to the bar, grab a couple of drinks, and then walk the two blocks over to that AMC location on 42nd Street to pack that movie theater for a big fight on Saturday nights. Uh, unfortunately, due to the coronavirus, uh, Jimmy Glenn uh, passed away last month. And, uh, you know, this is uh, when we're talking about our connections to movie going. It's something that uh, I think I'm going to miss when we go back to theaters, that sort of event cinema experience uh, that I used to have on a, on a Saturday night. And that's really what it's based on. I mean, recently in the last couple of years, there have been event cinema programming around popular TV shows like Game of Thrones, like Doctor Who. Like people are encouraged to to dress up, even to talk. Like it's there, it's just a fun fan event, you know. And and as Mark Allenby mentioned, you know, in our interview, he said it's not about rewriting the rule book right now. Now is not the time to untangle the sports rights issues. You probably couldn't do it <laughs> right now is to stick with what you know works. Those fan events, those cultural events, uh, a, a huge freakishly large fly in the ointment there is that those events aren't really happening anymore. <laughs> For example, the Met Opera, which has been one of the cornerstones of, of event cinema has recently said that they're just not filming their fall season. Live concerts aren't happening. Ballet, live theater events aren't happening. And while a lot of these distributors, you know, they do have older titles kind of, you know, in the bank, those are going to run out eventually. So what do you do? How do you change course? And Mark Allen at Trafalgar actually mentioned something that I hope happens that I, that I think is interesting, which is just filming these things in empty theaters and getting them out to cinemas that way. So we're looking at staging certain productions without an audience or with a socially distanced audience, but essentially primarily for cinema and potential downstream post-cinema. That is something, you know, while the West End is is effectively closed, there's buildings that are empty. And if you haven't got a full paying audience in, there, there, there probably is enough flexibility with the right planning to put shows on and capture them. I mean, that seems like the ideal way to go right now, right? I, I saw a thing yesterday, I guess, uh, you know, Radiohead the band said, oh, you know, we're going to be live streaming this show. And I got really excited because I was like, oh, that's cool. They're going to play in an empty room. They're going to live stream like a current Radiohead show. That's not what they're doing. They're basically broadcasting old shows. In this case, I think the first one they're doing is a concert from the year 2000, which is great. But it, it does seem like there's really an opportunity for, you know, any major artist to do kind of a unique live show you know for example i'm a big fan of nick cave and the bad seeds he did kind of a almost a spoken word tour last year where he 
did a lot of interaction with the audience. He and the band were going to do a tour this year. I had tickets for at the Staples Center in LA yesterday. I got the email that that show is canceled. I would love to see an act like that do kind of a, a, a merging of things where it was like, can you put together some sort of really unique live show in an otherwise empty venue that can be broadcast to fans live, you know, once you get an encore uh, broadcast two days later or whatever. It seems like there's a lot of opportunity there at the very least. It was cool at first to see like, you know, videos on Twitter of singers singing from their living rooms over Zoom. Right. Yeah. That kind of wore off real quick. Because <laughs> you want a production. It's like, oh, it's Christina you know? Aguilera on her sofa. Yeah. But I think what, what Russ brings up is a great point. Uh, we're still in a situation as we come back online uh, with cinemas where to a certain extent, it feels like one of the biggest advantages that theatrical has, which is exclusivity of premium content, isn't going to be there right out of the gate, right? The studio content will be tiered in release dates, meaning you'll have Tenet one week and then you probably, and then Mulan the next week and so on and so forth. You won't have a lot of different content coming out. So you'll need to sort of program the quiet spots in between those major releases to make sure there's something on screen that could appeal to someone that doesn't want to see Tenet, that doesn't want to see Mulan. And obviously that's going to be difficult with markets possibly uh, suspending operations with a, with a possible second wave of coronavirus. It's going to be kind of tricky to, to figure out the scheduling. And I know, Rebecca, in, in your conversations, that's something that distributors have at the top of their mind. Definitely. I mean, it kind of echoes something that Adam Aaron said in the recent Q1 call is that, you know, when Tenet comes out, they can react to demand, open auditoriums, close auditoriums, add show times, you know, get rid of show times, depending on what the demand is. Uh, that flexibility is really key. And it, and it's something that event cinema can, can really provide right now. Uh, like I said before, initially, event cinema is very much appointment viewing. You know, you see it one time and it's there. And now, you know, what I've heard from certainly uh, Bernadette McCabe at CineLife, uh, they're willing to offer a lot more flexibility when it comes to programming their content. You know, say you have 12 screens, are all of them going to be tenant? Are people going to want to see tenant at 10 a.m.? On a Wednesday morning, maybe not. That actually might be when I go see Tenet, to be completely honest. Yeah, that's that's what I'm most <laughs> you'll, likely you'll to do. You'll be the one. <laughs> I, that's the purpose. Yeah, that's the point. No. You want you want to have options, and um, having options is 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 really what event cinema is all about for a distributor. We're making everything available for an extended period of time, so exhibitors can book it whenever they have opportunities, whenever they have a need, or um, so everything we have we're making available for six to eight or 10 weeks and they can book whenever they'd like. With some of these titles, we would have maybe only made it available for a week or two weeks, but now we're making extending it with all of the content providers that we have the privilege of working with. We've been able to extend it and give exhibitors as much flexibility as possible to book whenever they've got time. And aside from event cinema distributors changing up their traditional models now, to make it more flexible for the distributor. Really, event cinema's always been a pretty flexible medium. 
compared to traditional methods of distribution. There's not a lot of marketing budget there. There's a can be a very quick turnaround, which I think in, in this era that we're in now where it feels like everything can turn on its head from day to day, that need for nimbleness in programming, especially, you know, over over the next couple months through the end of 2020, it, it is going to be a real asset here to exhibitors. That anxiety from the exhibition community, you know, it, it is genuine. All of that said, event cinema is kind of better positioned than traditional film, I, I believe, um, in, in that, you know, it doesn't attract the same marketing budgets. The risk is kind of slightly more contained. And as as such, you know, you can, you can with a finished product, you can have something out six weeks later and, and you don't have the same kind of ramp time and build up and, and lead it because you're, 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 you've got a demand through scarcity model and it's not asking for huge infantry from the cinemas and so on. So I, I do think um, there, there's still opportunity and, and that, the, that there, there will be great events both in 2020 and 2021. But we, we have to have an eye to the fact that, that it, you know, the industries will be impacted in, in, in the medium term as well as the immediate term. So as a viewer, what's the thing that you want to go see, whether it's something that has been programmed or something that you think is, you know, feasible potential programming for any of these companies? A comment about about my not being cultured aside (laughs) before, that was some self-deprecating humor. I actually am quite cultured. I'd see some some Broadway musicals. That was something that uh, it was kind of like the sports thing where rights issues were holding it up and it just didn't happen for a while and it's finally kind of started to you can see some big big broadway shows you know hamilton was was going to be on the big screen albeit not in an event center capacity and then that didn't happen <laughs> but uh, I, and i have to i have to speak up uh, in that regard i was really disappointed with it, with that decision I, I think something like hamilton would have been a great opportunity uh, even from an event cinema perspective, for Disney to partner with Broadway theaters, and we know that Disney has a huge presence uh, in Broadway, to sort of team up either through an event cinema context or further down the line when more theaters open, in a way where this could act maybe as a de facto fundraiser, maybe through a portion of ticket sales, maybe through a ticket sale premium or donation uh, capacity to support Broadway theaters with this sort of context uh, when it goes back on. Instead, uh, I think the decision unfortunately taken uh, by Disney is very self-serving, where it benefits Disney and Disney alone by dumping it on Disney Plus rather than using this as a way to help both uh, theatrical exhibition and uh, Broadway during a critical time. That actually brings up a point that I, w- I wish I had thought to make earlier, which is that the viability and potential power of his, of event cinema is highlighted by the fact that two of the planned releases on Disney's truncated calendar this year are both effectively event cinema. Hamilton, as you mentioned, which is going to Disney+, Plus, but then also Peter Jackson's revamp, uh, Let It Be, uh, which is being presented as the Beatles' Get Back. You know, that is effectively an event cinema program. Uh, it just, it's got the marquee name of Peter Jackson, which means that there's also uh, a lot of money that was able to be put into it in order to restore the footage and that sort of thing. But but effectively, it's it's still the same sort of programming, uh, which just tells you that there is a lot of value here. 
I mean, there's been some crossover. There was actually in, in 2018, uh, around Christmas time, a Peter Jackson documentary about uh, World War One: They Shall Not Grow Old, that did so well over that initial event cinema screening and the encore screenings. Warner Brothers actually took it and gave it a limited run right. from that. Right. So yeah, there, there's there's definitely room, I think, uh, for cooperation. I mean, that's really how event cinema thrives is is getting all these different groups in the entertainment industry to uh, cooperate with each other, which is sometimes easy and sometimes not. And that's what I'm fascinated the most uh, about this uh, sector in programming, the way that event cinema can get content that isn't meant to make $100 million, even $50 million, that's really just meant to sort of activate uh, a fan group and can be programmed on an off-peak night, like a Tuesday, Wednesday night, and can be fairly lucrative in this limited way for both the distributor and the exhibitor. It's a very interesting strategy that allows for a lot of this experimentation. You wouldn't think that a one-week run of a World War I documentary would do so well. But I can tell you, as, as a member of a sort of niche fandom in my own attendance at event cinema events through boxing, it's a great sort of experience when you can go somewhere and everyone in that theater is there because they feel like they're part of a select few. I think that aspect of community is something exclusive to event cinema and to say opening night, right? Or one of those Thursday night preview screenings. That excitement is something wonderful about going to the movies when you can share this uh, unspoken bond with a person sitting next to you and, and really makes the room electric. Actually, I'll go even further. I think that's one of the reasons uh, why I enjoy going to film festivals at all. Really, the, going to film festivals can be a little bit of a chore, uh, especially as an audience member if, if you're not if you don't have press access. But you go for that sort of electricity, for that sort of uh, being part of a conversation that is bigger than you. I agree with that. I mean, it, it's what we talk about when we talk about movie theaters being a community experience, just more so. Right. So. And I hate to go back to sports, but I, I wouldn't really want to go back to watch, let's say, a, a basketball game in the middle of the season or, or a meaningless uh, Tuesday night baseball game. As a sports fan, that you know, having that on a movie theater really isn't going to get me uh, going. And while I completely understand the cost of putting on Major League Baseball playoffs uh, in movie theaters can be prohibitive. I'm also not too interested in that. Uh, what I would love to do, uh, and if you want to go super into the niche world, I would love to watch uh, on the big screen with that technology some vintage games with uh, with some iconic players. You know, we, we, there was a lot of conversation around that Last Dance docu series on ESPN. It would be great if uh, if you could find a way that it was financially viable to put some of those games on the big screen. I, I I'm not sure it would be, and I think that's the that's the uh, negative part about sports programming. It's really only relevant on the big screen if it's live when you don't know what's going to happen. Well, that's, I mean, I don't care about sports either way, Daniel. So, <laughs> I, think what, I think what we're taking out of this is that we need uh, Peter Jackson to restore, you know, a set of classic games, you know, whether it's, you know, like give me Peter Jackson restoring the broadcast of the 1986 game between the Red Sox and the Mets where Bill Buckner dropped the ball. Like, let me see that on the big screen. Now you're going to like gory era 
Peter Jackson. I think it, that's that's definitely what are, what are those first two with added buckets of blood. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. I would be into that. The gauntlet is thrown here, Peter Jackson. If you don't if you don't do this, we're, the box office podcast is going to be <laughs> extremely disappointed in you. If there's a filmmaker that's good at four hours pieces of content that are exciting for about 20 minutes. Hey, Peter Jackson's your guy. I think he'd be perfect to recreate uh, baseball games. Oh, that is brutal. Oh, that is brutal. No. That was bad. We love you, Peter. <laughs> your early stuff, mostly. <laughs> I, I would simply add that, like, you know, I love live music and I love the fact that uh, these companies are putting live performances in front of audiences who otherwise might not get to see them. I'm not that interested in going to those. Like I, uh, there's the great Prince concert film, Sign of the Times, uh, which played at the New Beverly here in Los Angeles a few years ago. And I went... And it was it was fun. I mean, the movie's great. It's lively. You know, there were kind of people dancing in the aisles. Uh, and even so, it still felt like something was missing. You know, it just doesn't have that thing that you quite want it to have. But going back to what I was saying about, like, uh, Nick Cave a few minutes ago, if somebody could come up with a slightly more innovative approach to the concert experience that did something that isn't just trying to replicate the live show, but that gives me that experience in a way that I can't get it in a live setting. I would be really interested in that from a whole variety of bands, you know, alternately Peter Jackson remaster stop making sense by the talking heads, uh, and Jonathan Demi. And, uh, you know, actually, you know what? It doesn't need to remaster. That movie's perfect. If anybody plays that movie, I'll go see it. That's my answer. Did Rebecca? Oh, Rebecca said musicals. I copped out. I just said musicals. Well, you know, and I would say about musicals. So, having just talked about you know live music, I have a real problem with musicals because, like, hearing and deciphering lyrics is often very difficult for me, uh, especially when I don't know the songs. Um, and so, like, going to see a musical for the first time where I don't know it is on stage is really tough for me because I can't really make out a lot of like the details, which makes movie musicals really great because they're mixed a little bit differently. They can push that vocal track really far forward or alternately there are subtitles. And so there's some, you know, like combining cinema technology with Broadway offers an interesting possibility for someone like me where I like musicals, but I find that Broadway is, that material is often at arm's length for me. And there's something in event cinema that could bring it a little bit closer, whether it's, you know, some sort of optional subtitles or whatever, I would be interested in that. Same as a, as a, has a hard of hearing, can't make out the lyrics Yes, <laughs> ever. Same. <laughs> Too many loud rock shows for me. I think I, I destroyed my own capabilities there. Our, our original question, Russ was going to be, what was the first concert you went to? Oh, what was and the first it, concert? The answer was so embarrassing. We didn't. Even, we decided to scrap it. Oh my! I will happily answer that question. Okay, now now you walked into it. Maybe we'll just use this instead. Go for <laughs> it. Uh, the first concert I went to. So you got to understand. I lived in West Texas. I lived in Midland, Texas. We did not have a lot of bands come through. There were virtually no like you know small club type places. So we had like the County Coliseum arena and that was it. And you went to see whoever played cause that was your option. So the first concert I went to was, um, the band rat Yes, with Queensryche opening. This is awesome. 
Uh, and that was in 19, either 86 or early 87. I think it was 86. I think it was like late 86. So that was my first show. Round and Round is my go-to karaoke jam. That sounds like probably one of the most iconic concerts I could think of in the 1980s. Russ, uh, on your end, Rebecca, you're a child of the 90s, as I am as well. Do you remember what your first concert experience was? Yeah, that was that was no doubt. That was like good era, no doubt, before they got bad oh. with the this this opener who no one had heard of and everyone was kind of confused by and and, and everyone was kind of disappointed. They were called the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> oh no. Everyone no one I think it was like immediate like post Fergie. I don't I actually I didn't pay enough attention to them to, to remember. It was not oh, good. No. They're they're like the quintessential bar mitzvah band. I feel if you go to a bar mitzvah, there's going to be at least two Black Eyed Peas songs. And and, and the, the first opener was actually lit to take it really 90s. Oh, oh. come on. They were great. Lit they were awesome. great. They were great. They had that one good song. Oh, this is going to be like culturally embarrassing for me. So my apologies in advance. Uh, my parents, when I was like 11 or 12 years old, dragged me to this, to, to Mexico. We, we're from Querétaro, which is three hours north of Mexico City. So we we drove for this. This is horrible. So we drove to Mexico City to watch a reunion concert of Mexican boy band. Uh, not, I'm sorry, Mexican uh, teen idol band because it was, it was co-ed, uh, Timbiriche. It was terrible. It, I mean, even even being 12 years old, I remember sitting through it and thinking, "Oh, this is this is t- the worst thing I've ever listened to." Uh, now I, I think, as I've grown more accustomed and and, and fond of Mexican 80s pop, uh, I, I look at back at it a little more fondly. But uh, it is nowhere near a cool 80s rock concert, or uh, no doubt you, you got no doubt during their best era. The only era that matters. It really did. You really did. And I do, I want to circle back for a second because, you know, I said like, uh, oh, you know, it was West Texas. There weren't a lot of options. You went to see whatever. There were certainly a number of shows that I went to see because it was like, well, this is the big loud rock show that's playing this month. I'm going to go. I was ecstatic to go see Rat in Queens. <laughs> I was so Come on. excited and I'm still I think about that and I hold that memory. I'm still excited when I think about it. There, there. I would do that again in a heartbeat. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, well, I just went to that because it was the only option. I was like, no, I would have driven a couple of hundred miles to go to that. Put respect on Rat's name. Yes. If anyone has the <laughs> rights to that show, get in touch with any of these event cinema distribution companies we mentioned today and you will have at least three tickets. <laughs> for real, for real. Uh, well, thank you guys so much for, uh, this, this is terrific. And, um, you know, I, I'm look forward to seeing kind of how this stuff all gets programmed, uh, as we go forward into the new era of, of open movie theaters. We'll see when it happens. Thanks for having us on. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Caitlin Kehoe and uh, recordeditpodcast.com. This episode was uh, written and had all the heavy leg work done by Rebecca Polly and was narrated by Rebecca and Daniel Laria and me, Russ Fisher. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe via any podcast app of your choice and also rate us and recommend us to your friends as long as you have good things to say. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the near and distant future of the cinema industry, especially as we take additional steps into a post-COVID future. 
Thanks a lot.